This is Life Vows Sashin, January 20th, 2021, second full day talk. Meeting this moment with great determination. Part of the process of this Sashin are some clarifying questions that help us get to the heart of the matter. We examine those questions in a small group of spiritual friends in an environment of presence and deep listening. In that way, we're able to see more clearly our heart's aspiration. Our initial questions are acknowledging our inheritance so that we can see more clearly where we are now. So I want to talk a little bit about that, our inheritance. And I want to talk about this practice here now. Everyone is doing their best, diligently, earnestly, wholeheartedly, so that we can see more clearly and clean up our own delusions. This is about returning to the practice over and over and over. It's just the same repetitious process like sweeping or cleaning. We clean up our own delusions that way too. Letting go of the thinking mind, being present, aligning with what's true, what's here. And this is determination. And we can identify our true nature, the values that are our inner compass, our North Star to help us orient in the dark, our aspirations and our vow. Practice is crucial for the clarity to be able to see, to be able to identify our compass and use it properly. When we use it properly, we can see and feel when we go off course. We're paying attention when we go off-roading or wander into the blackberries, when our actions are misaligned or maybe harmful. So for that, we do need great determination. And finally, I hope to share an exemplar of fearlessness and determination that's particularly appropriate for this week of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday and this inaugural, inauguration day in the United States, 2021. The commitment to being of benefit in the world, a clarity of vision. This exemplar had a very clear North Star complete and total devotion of a human life to seeing it through, unshakable commitment in the face of sometimes terrifying obstacles. So I'll talk about her later. When Maizumi Roshi was asked whether Buddhists believe in a soul, something that persists after death, he said, no, it's the vow that continues. It's the vow that continues. So right here, right now, we are living 
the continuation of Maizumi Roshi's vow. These Roshis, this monastery, all the life energy of innumerable beings. We could also include the inheritance of this land, this building, the building in Portland, the Heart of Wisdom Temple, the previous inhabitants, the Chinookan peoples, our Dharma ancestors, our nation, our families, ourselves, this earth, our own life. It's a rich inheritance. We have a lot to work with. Maizumi's vow to root the Dharma in the soil of the United States so that it never dies out. The energy of this vow seemed to focus all of, through all of this complexity, and he was able to project it beyond his lifetime. What a potent and powerfully beneficent vow. What a rich inheritance we have. And we are richer and more powerful still. Joanna Macy, a Buddhist climate change activist, reminds us that we need to act our age. She says, now is the time to clothe ourselves in our true authority. Every particle in every atom of every cell in our body goes back to the primal flaring forth of space and time. In that sense, you are as old as the universe, with an age of about 14 billion years. This current body of yours has been being prepared for this moment by Earth for some 4 billion years. So you have an absolute right to step forward and act on Earth's behalf. When you are speaking up at a city council meeting, or protecting a forest from demolition, or testifying at a hearing on nuclear waste. You are doing that, not out of some personal whim or virtue, but from the full authority of your 14 billion years. Each of us takes part in distinctive ways, given our different circumstances and with our different dispositions and capacities. Our stories are all unique. All have something fresh to reveal. All can help inspire others. Any of us can claim that authority, just as the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree when Mara asked him, by what authority do you think you have to resolve the issue of suffering? His answer was simply to touch the earth. He didn't show his resume. He didn't say anything about his particular achievements or credentials or diplomas, or awards. This is our inheritance. And as we reflect on our personal history, those who have helped, those who have harmed, we can clearly see that what we do matters. What we do matters. This is why it's important to practice. This, this, this sashin, these conditions, 
this gift you've given yourself, this gift you're giving the world, to take part in this process, to give yourself this time to practice. It's a rare opportunity, a rare gift you've given yourself to come and practice in this way, whatever way you can. It's not uncommon, especially at the outset of Sashin, to doubt that, to think of a thousand other things that you could be doing or becoming convinced that you're not doing it right. It's good to know that when doubt arises, that this is one of the five hindrances. So you can get that stamp on your Sashin passport. We can't travel anymore, but you can still get this passport stamped. Doubt, restlessness, torpor, anger, craving. And you are not the only frequent flyer. These arisings mean that you are practicing. When we take up this practice, there's something of a purification, like a fever or boiling broth produces that scum at the top. Deep practice can often bring the clarity of our own habits greed, anger, and delusion. We can see them more clearly when we practice. And sometimes it's just not pretty. It can be discouraging. But in fact, it's good news. How else can we work with them if we're unaware, if we're unconscious? So we might be operating from an unconscious vow to be safe, to be liked. Why? So I won't be alone? Why? So I can have support? Why? What's at the bottom of this? There's nothing unreasonable about wanting safety. But when we really look at how things work, with all these moving parts, it just may not be possible. Sometimes I'm operating from my very small vow to always be comfortable. I get every single time what I call the session jitters. Every single time. Even now when I do session at my very own home. When I go elsewhere, I would overpack, but I still get stirred up a little bit. Why? Because I'm probably going to be uncomfortable. But if that is what's running my life choices, it will not end well. It will not even work. Thankfully, I'm governed by a different vow. So the five remembrances can help us put this into perspective when we're examining our vows. I'm of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I'm of the nature to have ill health. There's no way to escape ill health. I'm of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. There's no way to escape being separated from them. My deeds are my closest companions. I'm the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. What we do matters. If we're operating from this 
understanding. Our deeds will flow from that. And our deeds will flow from our habits. So until we're a clear-seeing Buddha, and that's what we're working on right now, but until we truly realize the truth and are fully aligned with that, we might need some guardrails. Our vows are kind of guardrails to channel this moving, bubbling energy that is our life. The precepts are vows to help us. The precepts have been kindly collected, passed down by our Dharma ancestors. How would an enlightened being behave? So as they say in the 12 steps, you can fake it till you make it. We can adopt the precepts and the qualities of the bodhisattvas to help us shape this process that is our life. They're like training wheels, which I think are obsolete now. I haven't seen training wheels in a while. I do see little kids on these bikes that they can kind of push with their feet, their tiny little bikes, and they can learn how to balance all on their own. We can adopt these qualities of the bodhisattvas. Jizo's qualities are fearlessness, determination, benevolence, optimism, and vow. We need the clarity of Manjushri Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. We need wisdom to be sure that our actions, our values aren't expressed in ways that are ultimately harmful or misguided. We might identify some pretty high-minded values, but if we're expressing them in terribly misguided ways, then something's missing. It's certainly possible, as we've seen recently, for people to commit violence and murder under the banner of liberty and freedom. It's also possible for teachers of Dharma to become misguided, perhaps convinced that crossing boundaries with a student is appropriate. Nobody is immune. Nobody is immune from the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance. To me, this just explains so much about the world. I'm curious why there is a need for conspiracy theories when this is so obvious and so simple. Why have lizard overlords when there's just good old-fashioned greed that pretty much explains this mess we're in right now? Good old-fashioned greed that's no further than this human being. The phone calls are coming from inside the house. I guess it's more comfortable to think that all the evil is out there. But this is why we sit. We have to see into this. We have to see the poisons and to employ the antidotes that are also in all of us, that are our true nature generosity, 
compassion, and wisdom. Aruna Weissman came and did a, a, a day-long retreat. And she used this wonderful metaphor about the first day or two of a retreat. And she used the metaphor of one of those top-loading washers, washing machines, which are also kind of obsolete or getting there, where the, you put the clothes in and you put the water in and you put the soap in all at once, and then it starts to agitate. And you could look in it as it was going, and you could see that there was a scum that would just kind of rise to the top. So we can practice that this is, this is what practice offers us, this ability to kind of put our mind in there in the washing machine and sort out our true nature, these qualities that are inherent in all of us. So if you're finding yourself sitting there wondering what good is this all doing and wishing you were really out there doing something about all, all this suffering, that is again doubt talking. So please honor your practice and that of everyone here. We are engaged in something of great importance. Every sitting period, please know that it matters. Your practice matters because what you do matters. It's important to identify our aspirations so that we can apply them. And we can learn so much by observing others. We inherit the examples of others and can build upon their lives, their devotion. We see how their vows continue like a great relay race with no end. We just pass the baton to the next people and the next people. So here on this inauguration day in the United States in 2021, there is a new president, the first, also the first black South Asian woman vice president. It might be worth noting some of the inheritance that brought us to this moment and the values that have been applied by some exemplars. If you've been completely insulated from media and the session, I can tell you that the inauguration was peaceful and the speech from President Biden was essentially a vow. He referenced part of our inheritance as a nation. He said, in another January, on New Year's Day in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. When he put pen to paper, the president said, and I quote, if my name ever goes down into history, it'll be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. It's the vow that continues whether there's a soul that endures, this vow continues. This vow to free the enslaved people. A quote from the Emancipation Proclamation. This vow to recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons 
and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. So President Biden goes on to say, my whole soul is in it. Today on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. That is a very big vow. We can apply the example of exemplars to our endeavors, whether that's an inspiration to act in the world, to dive deeply into practice, to take on the responsibility to carry forward a vow. Our nation was founded on some important values like freedom, democracy, liberty. We can throw those words around, but in action, there was slavery, women couldn't vote. So the application of these values can surely be clouded by delusion. It was only 1965 that the Voting Rights Act was passed. This multiracial democracy is not very old. Martin Luther King was someone who is an exemplar for many, using the spirit of Gandhi and nonviolence to inspire change and justice in America. But I want to talk about another civil rights exemplar, one who demonstrated a particular fearlessness and determination. She was a woman of action, a deeply spiritual person. She used Bible verses and spiritual songs to help mobilize the people of Mississippi to push for their right to vote. She faced intimidation, violence, beatings, and losses, and her vow continued beyond her death at age 59. Fannie Lou Hamer was born in 1917, the youngest of 20 children in a family of sharecroppers in rural Mississippi. She was the granddaughter of enslaved people. After reaching the sixth grade at age 12, she dropped out of school to work on the cotton plantations in the Mississippi Delta. The slavery system was replaced by the sharecropping system, which was still dreadfully oppressive. She had wished for children, but during a surgery to remove a tumor, she was sterilized against her will. She worked most of her life as a timekeeper on a plantation because she was literate. So when workers from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee arrived in Sunflower County, Mississippi in 1962, when she was 45 years old, they were organizing residents of the county to try to register to vote, which was a dangerous thing to do in those days for black people. You could be fired for it, which she was. You could be arrested, which she was. You could be killed. She says, when they asked for those to raise their hands who'd go down to the courthouse the next day, I raised mine, had it high up as I could get it. I guess if I'd had any sense, 
I'd have been a little scared, but what was the point of being scared? The only thing they could do to me was kill me, and it seemed like they'd been trying to do that a little bit at a time ever since I could remember. She shared the experience of trying to register to vote in Mississippi and pass the literacy test in speeches she gave across the country. So the Voting Rights Act in 1965 made these literacy tests illegal. So here she was giving testimony. She says, my name is Fannie Lou Hamer, and I exist at 626 East Lafayette Street in Ruleville, Mississippi. The reason I say exist is because we're excluded from everything in Mississippi but the tombs and the graves. That's why it's called that instead of land of the free and home of the brave, it's called in Mississippi, the land of the tree and the home of the grave. She says about this day in 1962 that 26, uh, 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola, Mississippi to try to register to become first-class citizens. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that I was fired for trying to become a first-class citizen. So when we got to Indianola on the 31st of August in 1962, we were met there by the state highway patrolmen, the city policemen, and anybody, as some of you know that have worked in Mississippi, any white man that's able to wear a, a khaki pair of pants without them falling off him and holding two guns can make a good law officer. So we was met by them there. After taking this literacy test, some of you have seen it. We have 21 questions, and some is not questions. It began with, write the date of this application. What is your full name? By whom are you employed? So we can be fired by the time we get back home. Are you a citizen of the United States and an inhabitant of Mississippi? Have you ever been convicted of any of the following crimes? when if the people would be convicted of the following crimes, the registrar wouldn't be there. But after we go through this process of filling out this literacy form, we were asked to copy a section of the Constitution of Mississippi. And after we've copied this section of the Constitution of Mississippi, we are asked to give a reasonable interpretation to tell what it meant, what we just copied that we had just seen for the first time. These were the literacy tests that disenfranchised so many black voters. So she says, after finishing this form, we started on this trip back to Ruleville, Mississippi, and we were stopped by the same city, patrol, city policeman that I had seen in Indianola and a state highway patrolman. We was ordered to get off the bus. After we got off the bus, we was ordered to get back on the bus and told to go back to Indianola. When we got back to Indianola, the bus driver was charged with driving a bus the wrong color. That's very true. The same bus had been used a year after year to haul people to the cotton fields to pick cotton and to chop cotton. But this day, for the first time that this bus had been used for voter registration, it had the wrong color. They first charged this man $100, and from $100 they cut it down to 50 and from 50 to 30 and after they got down to $30, the 18 of us had enough among ourselves to pay his fine. So that's some of her testimony. It's said that in the midst of this event and all the fear and uncertainty of the police arriving, which was potentially deadly and, and still is to this day for many people, for black people, 
In the midst of this event, Fanny Lou Hamer began to sing. She raised her powerful voice, first in church songs, then movement songs, and this helped to calm the other passengers on the bus. And she continued to use her voice as a powerful tool that mobilized many people in Mississippi and across the South during times of struggle in the movement through threats, through intimidation, through shots fired into a house where she was staying. She was arrested, she was jailed, she was beaten, and she sustained permanent injuries from those beatings. She went on to tell the truth about these events, unwavering in her conviction. Her spirit was indomitable. Her voice became more and more powerful and influential. She spoke plainly, and persuasively, and she impacted everyone who encountered her. Her knowledge of the Bible, which was how she learned to read so well, infused her speeches and inspired her work and the work of those around her. She unsuccessfully ran for the U.S. Senate in 1964 and the Mississippi State Senate in 1971. And in 1970, she led legal action against the government of Sunflower County, Mississippi for continued illegal segregation. She started local organizations to help the people of the county where she came from. She said, you can pray until you faint, but unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. She didn't shy away from the dangers of challenging segregation and denial of voting rights in Mississippi. She kept going, even after what some would call failures. She said, I'm going to be standing up. I'm going to be moving forward. And if they shoot me, I'm not going to fall back. I'm going to, I'm going to fall five feet, four inches forward. Her courage continues. It lives on in this expression of multiracial democracy. Many people have taken up this baton from Fannie Lou Hamer. We can stand on the shoulders of giants like this. This is all of our inheritance. She said, whether you have a PhD or no D, we're in this bag together. We can allow her to inspire us, to touch and enliven our own hearts. I feel this in my own heart. when I hear her incredible courage, her fearlessness. She became something much larger than herself. Her whole life contributed to the betterment of our world. She committed. She kept getting back up no matter what happened to her. 
I should say, don't let a story about a magnificent being like this, like Fannie Lou Hamer, activate your inner critic. Fannie Lou Hamer's life can inspire you. She was exactly who she was, where she was. She was where she needed to be, the exact place, the exact time. And so are you. Let her life and let others' lives, your exemplars, inspire you to see what values are awakened in you and what is your North Star. Remember your own true authority, touching the earth for yourself. What is your experience right now? This is what we are doing here. It is so important. Thank you for practicing. Thank you for taking responsibility for this life.